It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 391 for May 4th, 2014. This week, May the 4th be with you. It's, it's kind of a joke. See, May the 4th? May the 4th be with you. <clears throat> Never mind. About once a year, I review my backup procedures and generally change nothing. This year, there is a change. If you've thought about network-attached storage, a new router might make the job easy. As bad as the latest Internet Explorer security flaw is, Windows XP makes it even worse. And in short circuits, Wheeler says the FCC is not killing net neutrality. McAfee's applications created a problem for me, but customer service came through. And finding some guidance to take better photographs. Maybe you share one of my greatest fears, losing one or more important files. There's no shortage of threats, from disk failure to malware to simple user stupidity. Yes, I have accidentally deleted or overridden files that I wanted to keep, but I haven't lost a critical file in 14 years. Believe me when I say I remember events like that because they're painful. I do remember losing a document when desktop computers had two 5-inch floppy disk drives and no hard drive, so that would have been prior to the mid-1980s. It happened when I was attempting, ironically, to make a backup copy of a file I was working on, and the data on the floppy disk was scrambled. The other time I lost files was when my computer was attacked by a virus on Monday, May 8, 2000. See, I do remember these things. Backup isn't the kind of topic that can be made fun or exciting or even very interesting. It's one of the dullest topics I can imagine, but it's also one of the most important subjects to come to terms with. Hard disk drives are a lot more reliable than they used to be, and it's not uncommon to find drives that are still running reliably after five years or more. In fact, I know some people who are running, in commercial applications, disks that are nearly 10 years old. But they do fail. One of the drives on my desktop system failed recently, and it was less than two years old, well within the five-year warranty. Because I had a backup strategy, even that was nothing more than a minor annoyance. There are files on my computer that, if lost, would cause only minor distress. Downloaded program files, for example. These can always be downloaded again. Losing certain other files would be significantly more distressing. Installation keys for downloaded program files can usually be retrieved from the publisher, but that can take a while. And then there are files that, if lost, would be catastrophic, at least at some level. Financial and tax records, for example. Photographs. Website development files. Things like that. It's that third category that causes me to review my backup procedures once or twice every year to ensure that I'm doing everything possible to avoid catastrophes. For one thing, I don't depend on any one backup system because that would create what's essentially a single point of failure. That is overstating the case a bit because the file could be lost only if it's damaged or destroyed in two locations, on the primary computer and on the backup medium. 
but I still prefer to have multiple solutions. The multi-part system I've used for several years consists of several components. First, all critical files, but not the operating system and installed programs, are backed up to Carbonite, an online backup service. Second, all critical files, including the operating system and the installed programs, are backed up to disk drives that are stored off-site except for the one day a week when they're used to back up new files. And third, all working files are backed up as they're changed to local USB drives. That third backup option, the one to local USB drives, can't really be considered a true backup because any backup that's stored in the same structure as the device that's being backed up is subject to actions that can damage or destroy the computer. So you lose both the primary and the backup. But there's a good reason for doing this. If the primary computer suffers a hard drive failure, for example, or a CPU failure, or a mainboard failure, the local backup drives can be attached quickly to a notebook computer, and I can continue working with virtually no downtime. The local backups are also handy if I accidentally delete or overwrite a file. Copying the previous version of the file back from the external drive to the computer takes just a few seconds. In the event of a more significant system failure, I can restore from the drives that are stored 15 miles away or from Carbonite's server in Boston. To lose a critical file, it would be necessary for something to damage or destroy the desktop computer, the local backup drives, drives that are stored 15 miles away, and a disk drive in Boston. Something like that could happen, of course. It's my belief, though, that if it does, I'm going to have a lot more to be concerned about than some missing data files. I said I made some changes this time around. For the hard drives that are stored off-site, Macrium Reflect has been my preferred backup application for several years because it's possible to create a full backup for each logical drive on the system and then run incremental backups to add just a few new and changed files every week. The problem with incremental backups, though, is that a full restore requires the full backup and each of the incremental backups. If something goes wrong with one of the incremental backups, recovery might not be possible. The boot drive should be imaged. You do this so that all of the boot information, the registry, and all system files will be backed up, and Macrium Reflect is ideal for that. For the other drives, though, it'd be handy to have the exact directory and file structure as on the drive that's being backed up, and to be able to restore the file just by copying it back from the backup drive. Well, that sounded familiar. That's exactly what I do with those local USB backups using GoodSync. GoodSync is smart enough to copy only new and changed files to the backup drives. So why couldn't I continue to use Macrium Reflect to back up the boot drive and switch to GoodSync to back up the data drives? I've described both Carbonite and Macrium Reflect on previous programs, so this time we'll consider that GoodSync option. A free version of the program allows for up to three jobs and a limited number of files to be transferred. But the pro version, for 30 bucks, allows users to create any number of jobs, each with any number of files. And if you buy more than one copy, the extra copies cost considerably less. The jobs are listed as tabs near the top of the screen. The user simply selects a tab and then clicks the Analyze button. At the completion of the analysis process, the user can edit the job if needed, 
and then proceed to commit the process. Green arrows show how GoodSync will handle files, copying from left to right, for example, and you can set this up to do either a backup or a synchronize. Backups move files in only one direction, from a source to a backup. The synchronization process can move files in either direction to ensure the most recent copy of a file is stored on two or more computers. When the files have all been copied, GoodSync shows the files are synchronized with an equal sign. If there are any problems, an error icon will be displayed and the problem will be explained. What's particularly welcome about folder and directory backups using GoodSync is that the process takes so little time. Macrium Reflect is an excellent choice for backing up the system disk with a full backup taking about 90 minutes and incremental backups running no more than about 15 minutes. Folder and file backups seemed to be a problem with Macrium Reflect, though, with the enumeration process consuming several hours just to determine which files needed to be backed up. In most cases, the subsequent backup took no more than a few minutes because most of the files, on most of the drives, hadn't changed. GoodSync typically performs its analysis and enumeration in three to five minutes, so I was able to run an incremental backup on four drives this week in less than 20 minutes. The total time elapsed for Macrium Reflect's incremental backup of drive C and GoodSync's incremental backups of drives D, E, F, and G was less than half an hour. And my essential files are on the computer's hard drive, backed up locally, backed up to off-site drives, and backed up to Carbonite. <laughs> If you've ever thought about network-attached storage, you'll be happy to know that many new routers make it really easy to set up. When a Linksys router failed without warning recently, I knew I didn't want another Linksys router, so I ended up buying a Netgear router that runs both the 2.4 GHz range and the 5.0 GHz range. It also offered USB connections that could be used by an external disk drive, so I plugged one in. The drive appeared in the Windows Explorer as a network drive, which meant that I could set it up with a drive letter from all the computers on the network. The router did all the heavy lifting. It created a storage location called ReadyShare USB Storage, so any user on the network can connect using that network share name. You can also make the drive available locally via HTTP, via the internet using HTTPS, or with FTP either locally or on the internet and you can control read and write access separately with passwords. By default, only the local network connection and the local HTTP connection are permitted, and those are all that most people will need. Mapping the network-attached storage device's network share name to a local drive is easy enough. Just select Map Network Drive from Windows Explorer. Then you browse to the network share name and specify a drive letter. And the drive letter doesn't have to be the same on all the computers. You can choose whatever drive letter makes sense on any given computer. But then what? You've got a network-attached storage drive attached? What good is it? Well, I can think of several good uses for such a drive. First, because the network-attached storage drive obtains power from the router, and the router, presumably, is on all the time, the drive is always available to whatever computer is attached to the network. You don't have to depend on any particular computer being turned on to make it available. This makes the drive an ideal place for files that need to be shared among various users. 
Second, the network-attached storage drive can be used as a backup drive, keeping in mind the caution that any backup that's in the same location as the device being backed up really isn't a backup. And third, a network-attached storage device can usually be set up to allow streaming media for devices on your network that can accept streaming media. A smart television, for example. Network-attached storage might seem like a solution looking for a problem. But once you've been able to use a network-attached storage drive for just a few days, you'll probably realize how useful the setup is. In many ways, this is similar to having a network printer. Those who once made do by sending files to someone else to have them printed, or having to make sure that the computer the printer is attached to is turned on before trying to print a file, find that having a printer that attaches to the network makes doing work a lot easier. In other words, as I think Yogi Berra said, it's deja vu all over again. You've probably heard about the latest security flaw that affects Internet Explorer. As bad as the flaw is, it's even worse if you're still running Windows XP. Microsoft recommends some workarounds that involve disabling certain system functions. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security, via the Computer Emergency Response Team, says that XP users who cannot follow Microsoft's recommendations should use another browser. In fact, that's the easiest solution. Just switch to Firefox or Chrome or Opera or Maxthon. That's not to say that the other browsers don't have security flaws. They do. But these browsers aren't as tightly integrated with the operating system as Internet Explorer is. And I mentioned XP making it worse. XP multiplies the threat because support ended for that 13-year-old operating system on April 8th. No more security updates for XP. For those who must use Internet Explorer, Microsoft recommends unregistering VGX DLL. This is a dynamic link library, or DLL, that is associated with Microsoft Vector Graphics Rendering, VML. It's not a critical component, but unregistering it will change the way your computer works. Microsoft provides some guidance on how to perform the task, for both 32- and 64-bit systems, you must run the process from what's called an elevated command prompt. That means you need to run the command processor as administrator. So you'll be looking for cmd.exe in the Start menu. You'll right-click it, and you'll select Run as Administrator. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll find two processes, one for 32-bit Windows systems, the other for 64-bit Windows systems. If you follow those processes from Microsoft, what you'll be doing is unregistering that one DLL. And you'll find additional guidance on the Computer Emergency Response Team website. That's part of the Department of Homeland Security. There's a link to the CERT website from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, facing extreme criticism that the Federal Communications Commission, in the guise of protecting net neutrality, is actually killing the concept, FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler says that is not what the agency plans to do. This week, Wheeler said the FCC will write tough new rules to prohibit broadband operators 
from denying access to smaller operations and startups. Speaking to broadband executives this week, Wheeler said that a lack of competition in their industry has hurt consumers. This is, of course, at a time when Comcast and Time Warner are planning to merge. Because the two don't operate in any market where they compete today, the merger wouldn't do any harm to competition, but it certainly wouldn't do anything to advance competition either. The combined operation would control nearly half of the broadband market in the United States, so Wheeler says the FCC is concerned about the implications of that merger. Some state legislatures have created laws that prohibit municipalities from providing low-cost broadband service to residents. Wheeler says that the FCC can and will override those laws. The broadband providers have spent a lot of money lobbying state legislators to pass those laws. Addressing the annual meeting of the National Cable and Telecommunications Association, Wheeler seemed intent on convincing those, including me, who have been critical of the direction the FCC has been taking on net neutrality, that he is serious about maintaining an open Internet. In two weeks, the FCC will release the first draft of Wheeler's proposed rules for public comment. This is actually the third time the FCC has attempted to deal with the net neutrality issue. The proposal reportedly would allow Internet service providers to create a fast lane for companies that are willing to pay more. But Wheeler is also talking about policies that would provide reasonable access for everybody. If somebody acts to divide the Internet between haves and have-nots, Wheeler said, we will use every power at our disposal to stop it. McAfee offers a service that supports every computer, tablet, or mobile device you own for $100 a year. When they offered a half-price discount, I bought it. Except for one problem, it was a good buy. But 60 days later, I decided there was no solution to the problem. The refund period, though, is only 30 days. You might be surprised by what happened next. First, though, let me tell you about the problem. My preferred email program is The Bat, not Outlook, not Thunderbird. In the United States, The Bat is not a particularly common choice. McAfee's All Access created a problem with The Bat. Clicking any message to view it caused the program to be unresponsive for 30 to 60 seconds. The only solution involved switching either to Outlook or Thunderbird, both of those would be unacceptable as far as I'm concerned, or turning off antivirus protection when I'm viewing email also unacceptable. But given that I had placed the order 60 days earlier and the refund period was clearly stated as 30 days, I expected to write off the 50 bucks I'd spent. But the McAfee site had an option for a live chat. Here's what I wrote. It's been more than 30 days since I purchased the Total Protection Program, but I believe a refund should be granted because I've been working with support and on my own to resolve the problem. The problem has not been resolved and apparently cannot be resolved. Whenever the protection is active, my email program becomes extremely sluggish. I'd like to remove the McAfee product and return to my previous application. So I chatted briefly with a customer service representative, Sundaraj M., and to my great surprise, less than five minutes later, the problem was solved. Refund granted. This is remarkable. 
McAfee's products certainly do work well for a lot of people, and many companies, big companies, use the enterprise version of their protective applications. So clearly, the performance problem I experienced is unusual. My point in talking about this is that McAfee's products are well worth considering, particularly in light of the company's decision to empower its technical support and customer service staff with the ability to provide exceptional service. received a question this week from a listener who has several trips scheduled later this year. He and his wife were looking for someone in central Ohio who could provide some hands-on photographic training. They have Canon PowerShot SX40 and SX50 cameras. He would like to stop using the camera's auto ISO function. She is looking for tips on exposure modifications. Although I know nobody in central Ohio who provides individual training, I was able to provide some suggestions. I'll include them here because you might find them useful too. First, I can strongly recommend a series of foundations programs on lynda.com by Ben Long. While this isn't exactly a hands-on approach, Ben excels both as a photographer and as a teacher. He's also pretty good as an on-camera presenter. He has programs on lenses, exposure, and travel photography, among others. You could watch the entire series over the course of a month or two, so the entire cost would be just $25 to $50. I have seen some online deals for hands-on training, but I don't have any information about the instructors or the quality of the instruction. As for camera settings, using either aperture or shutter priority in situations where fast shooting is required, travel situations, for example, can sometimes be counterproductive. In most cases, I leave the camera set to program mode because the firmware built into today's cameras is both reliable and accurate. It usually chooses the best combination of ISO shutter and aperture. This is particularly true of shutter speeds. I don't know a lot about the SX series of cameras, but the noise level produced by the EOS series is surprisingly low through at least ISO 1600, giving the program mode the flexibility to adjust ISO to provide a faster shutter speed, so it's usually a good compromise. When I know that a fast shutter speed is essential, I'll switch to shutter priority, and when I want either more or less depth of field than program mode will likely give, I switch to aperture priority but I rarely switch away from auto ISO. If you shoot in RAW mode, you can easily use Adobe Lightroom or Adobe Camera Raw to adjust exposure up or down by a stop or two, and that's usually enough. If the camera metered a dark area and the highlight areas are blown out, though, there's really no fix for that. A couple of key points to remember, particularly with Camera Raw, is that every image will need some manipulation to be usable. At the very least, sharpening. In contrast to JPEGs saved by cameras, raw images have no sharpening added by default. If you're not using Lightroom, I would encourage you to take a look at it because it provides what I consider to be the best workflow management for amateurs and professionals alike. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. 
I look forward to talking with you again in a week.